Welcome to the next stage. The episode you're about to hear was recorded a couple days ago, before the makeup of Israel's new governing coalition became final. But it was already clear what direction things were taking. What troubles me most about this new coalition, under the joint leadership of Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid, is the inclusion of the liberal Zionist factions. Those parties elected by Israel's wealthiest sectors who want to see our country serve as an American-backed outpost for Western civilization. These parties, most directly connected to the settler colonial features of the Zionist movement, ruled the state of Israel for the first three decades of independence, and have since continued to hold disproportionate influence through the Israeli Supreme Court, mainstream media, and many of our cultural institutions. But with the exception of a small minority of wealthy elites, most of Israeli society wants nothing to do with these parties, and they no longer have the ability to attain power through electoral means. But this new coalition that Bennett and Lapid have put together has brought the liberal Zionist parties back from the wilderness of opposition and given them a renewed ability to push policies at the governmental level that could potentially further westernize our society, erode the Jewish character of our state, surrender portions of our country, create further barriers to Israeli integration into the Semitic region, and increase Israel's dependency on the United States. In short, a government full of liberal Zionist parties appears to be a regression for the state of Israel and for the Jewish liberation struggle more broadly. And this is likely a subject we're going to have to keep returning to and unpacking in future episodes. In any case, please enjoy the following discussion with my friend and colleague, Rev. Mike Foyer, who actually presents an argument for why this new government might be a positive development, at least in the short term. This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. A lot's been happening here in the land of Israel, politically, in terms of uh, the change government. It appears that the state of Israel will be getting. Uh, so I asked my good friend and colleague of Mike Foyer uh, to join me on the show this week uh, to talk about some of what's going on in our country, what's going on in the Jewish world. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Yudah. It's great to be here. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you before we get into politics is, you know, this week is Parshat Shlach Lecha. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things I think we need to acknowledge about our Torah is we learn that there are 70 faces of the Torah, meaning there are multiple angles at which one can approach it, one can understand, you know, often some of the same verses in our Torah. That's part of the dynamism of it and the way it sure. interacts with us, the children of Israel. Now, sure. this week's Parsha, uh, Parsha Tzlach Lecha, which is, you know, focused, of course, on the story of the spies, the Meraglim, the, the spies that Moshe sends up into the land of Israel uh, to do a reconnaissance mission of sorts and come back and report. You know, this story, uh, I've noticed, is understood very differently in different camps. Like, for example, in the Haredi world, the lesson taken from the story is more focused on the uh, necessity of being obedient to the word of the Creator, 
you know, uh, following Hashem's instructions and not speaking Lashon Hara, not speaking uh, evil speech, not not just against people, as we saw, you know, in the end of uh, last week's parsha, Parshat Baalotcha, but also against the land of Israel. And that seems the to be... Right, and, and that's the Haredi approach. Um, I remember a few years ago doing a uh, Shabbat retreat at a Chabad center in the Hamptons, and it was Parshat Shlach Lecha, and their focus was entirely on Tzitzit, the mitzvah of Tzitzit. And, yeah, right, and and I come from the Rav Kook world, you know, I teach in Machon Meir, and for us, of course, this is all about the necessity of conquering the land of Israel, having sovereignty over the land of Israel, and the terrible ramifications of us trying to uh, betray our obligation to liberate and have Jewish sovereignty over all of Eretz Israel, And of course, the fact that we have a situation in which the majority of Torah leaders actually took this approach that we don't go to the land of Israel, that we don't conquer the land, that we remain. Uh, yeah, to our great sorrow. Right, as opposed to the two, the minority, Yoshua bin Nun and Kalev ben Yefune, who basically were the minority rabbinic position, but were still deemed correct because they said, no, we have to go and conquer the land. So that's kind of more the approach in the world that I come from. Um, and Might I'm, as well. Well, you come from, you know, you teach in Pardes, which is, I guess, for... I live in a lot of worlds, but that's the world that, that I actually come... Well, I mean, I, I, the, I reside in, but yeah. That's the world I'm curious about. I'm curious because Pardes, I guess, represents more that kind of like liberal, westernized approach to Torah. And I'm mm -hmm. not sure that's who you are, but I know that that's one of the places where you teach and, and sit. So I'm curious to know how this Parsha is understood in a, a place like Pardes. I mean, I think that the elements are all the same. I haven't, you know, really delved too deeply with my students into this question of the relationship to the land that comes out of the Parsha. I mean, I, I, most of what I teach is actually Rav Cook, so I'm more in a position of, uh, of, of presenting a, a parallel view. But I will tell you this, is that I think there's a, um, a certain truth in the Parsha that, that is guiding that sort of divergent vision you're speaking about, which is the Mila Mancha, like the sort of keyword for the Parsha is Latour, right? Latour et Aretz, right? The spies were sent Latour. We translate it as to spy out, but it ties in, pun intended, to the tzitzit at the end, where Torah tells us, Lo right? You shouldn't go astray, or you shouldn't... How can it be that, that Moshe sent the spies to do something, which at the end of the Torah, or at the end of the Parsha, we're told not to do? What is this action? And, you know, my uh, my rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Cohen, who I, I believe you know as well, um, used to love to play on the uh, the phonetic pun then. He said, don't be a tourist. Mm -hmm. Don't be a tourist. What's the difference between a tourist and someone who lives somewhere? Is that a tourist always brings their world with them. As much as they try to have the experience of the of the native, you know, life, you know, at some level their their frame always precedes them. And so the spies were afraid and they saw through the lens of their their fear. And at the end of the parsha, we're supposed to like see the world as God wants us to, not after our eyes and our heart and however one may understand that. And in that sense, it's the challenge I see for my students is that on, on some level, most of them come and remain committed to being tourists. They're diaspora Jews and not in exile, but those who, who believe and affirm that it is a positive aspect of the Jewish current existence, not just historical, that one belongs outside. And so, so uh, I would say that that's really the take on the Parsha that I have 
have heard in bits and pieces in various ways from them, which mm. is that the land is something which is over there and staying out of it is a, is a vibrant, active option. Right. So for, for us, obviously, coming from the world I come from, that's a clear betrayal of the whole purpose of the children of Israel, the whole purpose. And, and runs personally counter to everything I'm striving to do. Right. <laughs> I guess that is one of the reasons I feel so comfortable in the Rav Kook camp is because I experience it as much more of a not only holistic approach to Torah, but really one that's very connected to the Jewish people's meta-narrative, meaning there actually is a, a tangible goal to history. There's something we're trying yeah. to achieve beyond the mere observance of fragmented mitzvot. Or even beyond the the um, abstract divine relationship, the image that has always spoke to me most profoundly in relationship to the land of Israel actually comes, and as much as I don't like to do this, but from Archimedes, mm -hmm. right? Which is, you know, this idea of, a, and whether it's apocryphal or not, he, he should have said it if he didn't, with that, if you give me a lever and where to stand, I can move the world. You've heard this phrase, yes? Sure. So, so to me, the lever is clearly the Torah. That was the blessing, the tool, the... The, the way of being that God gave us that moves the world. But the Eretz Israel is where we stand. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you don't have where to stand to do that, you push against the world and it just sends you off into the blue. That's what it is to be in exile. It's not that you don't have the Torah. It's not that you don't have the kochot or the capabilities to change the world. You just don't have where to stand. Think about Jewish history. Yeah, it's like you're just floating. Yeah. It's, just, it's not like you don't you, you can't affect the world, but you'll never really move it. Right. But that, of course, is rejected, as you know, and as I know, because we both engage with so many young Jews who are taking this principled diasporic position uh, that's been rejected. Yeah. yeah. And I understand the impulse to reject it. I, I think the rejection clearly comes from a discomfort or not being able to square the circle of our connection to the land of Israel, the necessity of the land of Israel in the Jewish mission, in the Jewish universal mission. Uh, with, yes. the, with the current political reality, the plight of Palestinians, Israeli policies, you know, I, I think it just rather than try to square that circle and kind of transcend the either or and or even like transcend the national to get to the universal through the national, meaning understanding that we need that vehicle, we need Malchut Israel in order to achieve Tikkun Olam. Um, you know, there's more of like a retreat from the idea of the land of Israel and having some form of you know, national body, just mm -hmm. to kind of go back to this, I guess most of this is coming from a younger generation, but I, I'm not sure how much they're familiar with the teachings of Rav Shimshon and Raphael Hirsch, but in many ways they've adopted the position of Rav Hirsch. Uh, when yes. To, you know, Galut Lishma, like yes. idealizing diasporic identity. But there's a critical distinction. Remember that Rav Hirsch's vision grew out of an enlightened liberalism. Mm -hmm. Right, meaning it was, it was there's a certain organic German European romantic element in it. Yeah. Um, whereas I see from my students, and I think you're correct by the way that there's a major generation. I mean, calling generation gap is so trite, but it's a generation shift. Not to say that everyone who's older looks at it one way and everyone's younger doesn't, but you're correct in my eyes. Um, but but they are reacting, and they're acting, I believe, to something very specific, which is difficult, but therefore sort of actionable, which is the tortured nature of the nation state. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, the, the nation state is a construct. It's a powerful one. It's an important one. I'm not necessarily so quick to chuck it, but it's it's not sacred unto itself. And one of the great mistakes I believe that that our Rav Cook world has made is taking one line, frankly, where Rav Cook in Orota, as far as I know, the only place he uses the word Midina, and when he speaks about it being the Yisod, you know, the foundation for the divine throne. 
But um, so quickly juxtaposing nation state with Medina and reducing the idea of Am to a nation. And, and, and they're reacting, I believe, in, in a way to a reduction of the grandeur of this idea of Eretz Yisrael, of Malchut Yisrael, of Am Yisrael, and frankly, of Torah Yisrael, right? That, it, it, uh, not all of them, but especially at parties, I see many of them reacting to, whether they know it or not, a reduction of that, a shrinking of many, in, in similar, by the way, to the way Rav Cook viewed the Chalutzim that he saw as reacting to the smallness of the Torah that was offered to them in exile. It's like history doesn't stop. It just keeps rhyming on as we go forward, right? The dialectic continues. Yes, thank God, because the alternative, I don't know, doesn't appeal to me. Right, but you know, where Rav Kook says that in Orod, when he refers to Medinat Israelis, Yesod Kiseh Hashem Ba'olam, he also makes very clear that other nation states are not that, meaning he criticizes what nation states are elsewhere. And actually, as far as I know, coins the phrase Medinat Israel, meaning at that point when Rav Kook is writing this, no one knew that we would call our state Israel. Some people thought Judea, nope. people thought Palestine. Right, yeah. meaning this is it was actually not even by any means the obvious choice. Right. I don't know if Ben-Gurion was reading Rav Kook and it's Possible he was, I and mean, we don't know. Is it possible? We don't know, yeah. Or it could have just been a spark of Nivoah that Rav Cook knew this is what we're going to call it. But I think that I feel comfortable looking at the state of Israel as, first of all, an obvious work in progress. It's flawed, which I find very empowering because it means that- Yeah, because it means there's work still to be done. Yeah, that's why I came here. Right. <laughs> I'm with you. Exactly. But it's also the vehicle through which the children of Israel fulfill the mitzvah of sovereignty. Meaning there is a mitzvah. Yes, right now, yes. Right. That's that's now we can change the structures. We can change. You know, there, there's a lot we can change. I think because a lot of the problem is, and we've discussed this before, that we're still essentially dealing with the British mandate with Jewish decorations. We're dealing with a European uh -huh. nation state. You know, that just is kind of dressed up Jewish without asking the fundamental. In question. the legal and political structures, you mean? Right. Like, how do we create a real Jewish? state, meaning a state that expresses our people's identity and values and its policies and in its institutions in a real deep way, not the skin of the state, but really the organs to be like deeply Jewish. And, and, the, and the skeleton. Right. I mean, to, to be honest with you, that's, that's where I think the greatest work lies, right. because so much of the structure of our political system, like mm -hmm. you said, it was, it's not just, uh, you know, the legal mechanisms that we just inherited from the mandate but the Knesset itself is basically a recreation of the World Zionist Organization's sort of uh, multi-party representative insider trading, you know, uh, it's power structure. And I think that it is not functioning toward our greatest good right now. Right. You know, before we get there, because I have okay. a lot to say on, on the current situation, uh, I do want to throw something out regarding the part. Uh -huh. And I'd like to hear what you think. You know, we see that when the spies initially come back with their report, they're not exactly lying, meaning everything they're saying, the facts are true. They're kind of- Sure, 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 not lying at all. Right, they're just constructing a narrative a certain way, as as we all do. Oh, yeah. They're, they're organizing their facts, they're contextualizing their facts in such a way that tells a specific kind of story, that sends a specific kind of message, which is, of course, demoralizing. But we see here that Moshe is initially silent. Moshe does not disagree with them, does not dispute what they're saying. We even see that his student Yoshua is silent. 
it's Kalev who speaks up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, way back in Parshat B'Shalach, Rav Kook has something interesting to say on why Moshe couldn't lead the war against Amalek. Right? He basically uh-huh. says that Moshe couldn't personally lead the war against Amalek because Moshe's nevuah showed him all of history in its full eternal context. Meaning Moshe understood that every force of evil, uh, even and especially Amalek, has an important unique function. And to a certain extent, the world needs Amalek to serve as a counterforce to Israel. Mm-hmm. And even we, like even Israel, requires that conflict for our own proper development and advancement. So because Moshe has this like greater awareness, this greater understanding of Torah that sees truth in, in even the existence of Amalek, he's aware of his own, he's aware of his own limitations, meaning because he has the ability to appreciate the positive role Amalek plays, he selects Yoshua to go and command the battle in his place. So taking that to here, meaning now the return of the spies and this demoralizing report takes place on the 9th of Av. So Yoshua mm-hmm. has already been a student, a top student of Moshe for at least over a year. And I think part of the problem here is that Moshe certainly, and perhaps even Yoshua, had reached a place in their understanding of Torah that they're able to really, even themselves, see the truth and validity of the spy's position. Meaning they don't see it as 100% wrong. They need a Kalev who might have a little bit of a more narrow view to come and actually fight against this. Like they need Kalev to do that. Like that's Kalev's role. There is a necessity, you know, in certain situations, there is a necessity to have those Jews who can't see the other side. Meaning who just know like this is the right way. Those people are wrong. We need to fight them. And those... Yes, yes. I mean, I, I assume that Moshe and Yoshua had the intellectual understanding that this is dangerous and needs to be put down, but their ability to fight against it wasn't the same as Kalev's, because Kalev was coming in, you know, strengthened and radicalized by the energy of Hebron. You know, I think we both know that Hebron has <laughs> radicalizing energy. Uh, it, it sure does. And so, you know, I, I always say when I give tours of Hebron, I often give dual narrative tours of Hebron, and um, I tell the you know, it's usually like European leftists who, who come on the tour and they do half a day with me, half a day with a Palestinian guide, and they kind of see both communities. And what I often say to them is, you know, Hebron has a very deep radicalizing energy. If there was not one Jew or Palestinian in the entire city, it would still probably feel pretty intense here. Okay, I hear it. And, and I find myself sometimes, like for example, it's hard for me not to see the truth in the Palestinian side. I've been working with Palestinians for a dozen years already, you know, to a certain extent. I understand how they're experiencing this conflict. I know why they're fighting. And when we get into- At the very the- least you're open to their experience. Right. I mean, you know, like that's, that's already a big step that a lot of people are not interested or perhaps even capable of taking. Right. I think of it as the hold fast mm-hmm. mechanism, what you're speaking about. And I think it's, um, you know, a friend once said to me, it's very hard to dig a deep, wide hole, right? Meaning meaning, part of what you're describing is that the breadth of perspective and the ability to integrate and see sort of the multifaceted nature of, of everything, which I, which I share with you, um, makes the application of force through action not just... Um, 
sort of a morally problematic and complicated, but actually difficult. Right. Actually difficult to, to muster the level of precision and focus be, because it is it is either too much of a falsehood, too painful, or too contrary to nature to X out all the other dimensions, which perforce draw off energy. Right? Nachshon ben Aminadav was not going to think too hard about the multiple options when he went into the sea. I mean, Moshe, you know, you think about what preceded it. It was this like the classic Midrashic presentation of, you know, the four camps. Let's make war. Let's go back. Let's, you know, lay down and die. You know, you, let's pray. You're familiar with the Midrash, I'm assuming. Right. right. right? It, it, it's interesting as a counterpoint that, that Nachman was able to push all those options out of his mind. So he wasn't smart enough, like you're saying, to know that those are options. Not the point is that the nature of his focus and perhaps the nature of Yudah and his leadership, I don't know, we could go there or not, um, as opposed to Yosef, right, is is a um, wholeness of focus, mm -hmm. which, which you know, to me, brings to mind the necessity of the prophet as the character balance to the king. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's why the institution of the Malchut in many ways rests upon the institution of Nebuah, mm -hmm. of prophecy, um, it, it, because you in a sense and go all the way back to Shmuel's warning about the nature of kingship. You don't want that kind of power and focus concentrated in the hands of a human being unless there's some sort of what we would today call check or balance. Right. You know, I, I even I've heard I don't know if this story is true, but I've heard it said that on election day, Rav Tsviuda Cohen Cook would often complain that he didn't know, you know, who to vote for because they're all true, meaning every option is true. So who do you actually mm -hmm. vote for in the end of the day? And, and I've experienced that too, meaning I know that there's something true being expressed by all of the different political parties. Uh, but well, fortunately, we're going to get a government that contains almost every single one, so. <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, I, I, I know what camp I belong to. And I do yeah, know well, I, I consider to be like the vanguard in terms of Jewish identity and connection to the land of Israel and, you know, the purpose of Jewish history. But listen, don't mistake the camp you belong to with, with the government that you want necessarily leading your country. It's not outrageous to think I have a camp I belong to and I don't want them leading by themselves. Mm -hmm. I, I want them as a strong voice in a concert. Right. I think the way you're putting it is good in the symphony of our political system. We want certain instruments to have a very loud presence, but that doesn't mean they should be conducting. Right. And certainly they shouldn't be soloing the whole time. Right. Even if they are conducting. So the ideal government I wanted to see, not because we had no other choice, whatever, like the ideal government I really wanted to see would have been, uh -huh. would have been Likud, Shas, United Torah Judaism, what we call the religious Zionist, you know, collection, those three parties uh, led by uh -huh. Motrich, um, Ram, meaning the uh, Islamic party of Mansour Abbas, and I guess also uh, Bennett or Sar, whoever. It didn't really matter which. But what I really wanted was specifically for Smotrich to sit with Abbas. Like I wanted them to come together because I thought it was a real opportunity to actually change the relationship dynamics, create something different, and to say, you know, for the last 40 years, Israel's most disconnected, westernized, bourgeois sector has monopolized our nation's relationship with the Palestinians, and we want yep. to change that. Those who actually live Jewish history and are living the aspirations of our people going back thousands of years, 
those are the Jews who should be engaging the Palestinians, uh, both for our sake and for their sake, to, to change the relationship and make it more positive and to create new opportunities in order for us to be able to move forward together. And I was deeply disappointed and frustrated with the behavior of Petelos Smotrich, his like principled refusal to even sit with Abbas, to even talk to Abbas. Uh, I mean, I, I hear it, but really, were you surprised? Like, really? I mean, you know this world. Uh, like, I, I think that the ideology has replaced the the sort of passionate engagement with history and reality, which characterizes you, you. The, you mean the dogma the, of the idea? You mean the Yeah, dogma. the ideology, like right. the hardness of this is the truth. We don't deviate. This is why it says it. This is how I understand it. I will not actually look at the world. Mm -hmm. I will see the world through the lens of what I believe. Right. I, I, I mean, well, I'm surprised that you're surprised, frankly. Yeah, I, I maybe part of it is me living in my own work and me being so okay. consumed by the work that I That's do. That's true of all of us, you know. Right. I mean, a lot of the work that I'm doing is is specifically working to bring Jews like Smotrich, you know, the type of Jews who vote for Smotrich, together well, with Palestinians. Don't mistake those two. Work. Right. Don't mistake the two. Jews like Smotrich and the type of people who vote for him are not the same thing. Right, it's a, to reach the levels of power that he has reached in our political system, mm -hmm. within the avenues he's taken, I would argue that that the ideological um, purity tests are increasingly mm. important in within that closed system, as I, opposed to many of the people out there who are probably surprisingly diverse who mm -hmm. who voted for it. Right. I mean, look, I expected more from him because I do see him as a smart guy. Like I do see him as very clever. As now, I only never mistake that he's not clever, that he's not smart. Right. I, I was expecting more. And some of the Rabbanim did, in fact, come out and like Rav Tau, for example, who many would Except if you watch their language, it was simply because of their perceived total disaster of the situation, which is emerging now. Right. It, it's just it's different. Right. But, but but I think the, you know, even the Noam party, which is like Rav Tau's party within Smotrich's faction, I think they looked at uh, Ram, they looked at Mansur Abbas's party as one that they actually share a lot of values with. And I think that's well, from a conservative social standpoint, small c, you know, you could put it that way or just, you know, I, I would put it as opposition to cultural imperialism to actually like fight against the westernization. That's what, I mean, if that language makes you happy, fine. But how's it any different? Meaning it's a conservative stance on, on cultural questions. Cultural imperialism is just, you know, is a sense that somebody else wants you to do it differently and you don't want to change. I would say it's a conservative stance within a Western framing. But different societies, different civilizations are so different from one another that I think it's sometimes unhelpful to apply the framing of one to another. And I think okay, but I, I think that the, the word conservative still needs to be valued for what it is, which is that the that that the the world mm -hmm. is is moving toward a breaking, not breaking, let's say a crushing of the less you know uh, structures of tradition in general the the sort of um, diminished authority of religious institutions not necessarily figures but but institutions uh, the the almost total victory of uh, consumerist individualistic materialist ethic and daily behavior See, um, I, you could I say it I'm began at, in the West I'm looking at this through a very different lens than you are perhaps I, I okay. think I, I look at the return of the Jewish people to our land uh, and to sovereignty and the rebuilding of Hebrew civilization as revolutionary and as leading humanity somewhere and as leading ultimately to the collapse of oppressive structures and systems 
And I think Israel came back to life after 2000 years in order to lead humanity into a post-capitalist world. But that can only happen once we fully understand ourselves, once we fully are able to create a society that's an expression of our identity. And our identity is not monolithic. I understand that. I don't want to, I don't want to mischaracterize here, but I think that part of that process, especially at this point, especially at this point in the process, is to break free of, maybe we can call it uh, ideological subordination to the paradigms, the values, the framings of the West. Like we have to be able to look at Western civilization, the civilization of Esav, the civilization of the Romans, as the civilization that we have been oppressed by or held captive by even mentally for the last couple thousand years. And that's something that we need to break free of as part of the redemption process and breaking free. I, I don't disagree with you, that. but I, I don't see that happening or coming from the, um, the religious institutions represented by the religious Zionist world today. Okay, coming from inside that world, I think their public perception or the way they communicate themselves, meaning I, I would say there's a complete lack of being able to express themselves beyond their own camp and, and knowing the language or the words. But what I see there is actually um, an attempt to break free of Western civilization and to create something independently Hebrew here. And uh, it happens to get lost in very problematic language, you know, when it's actually expressed beyond their camp. Okay, I, I think that there is elements of that, but I figure too quickly discounting the, the, the lived reality of, of the desire for social conservatism and the reactionary nature of this world. And, and, and once you have a reactionary, you know, uh, stance, then you're not breaking free of anything. Right, I, I guess I'm wondering what the real question here is, because I think that what I'm feeling, and I could be off, what, what I'm feeling is that maybe because we're in the process of creating or moving towards a proper decolonized Hebrew identity, as opposed to trying to conserve one that already exists, I look at that journey towards as revolutionary and not, and maybe I'm hearing you wrong, but I kind of hear you as relating to that as something we have or have had and are just trying to conserve and protect from other progressive forces. You're okay. speaking about the theoretical roots and much of the existent energy of what religious Zionism, as it were, as that whole camp is always meant to achieve. I'm talking about what I see to be the the lived reality and the structures of it right now which i am increasingly alienated from i just like a little little uh you know i meaning from a torah commitment standpoint from a basic values standpoint i feel very comfortable i like the people too frankly i find them to be shining examples of human beings not obviously across the board but you know um the most overwhelmingly part. so yeah you know yeah. uh but i'm deeply disappointed by by much of the this, the public stance, the ideological, and, and I don't take small, like I don't, I don't I'm not necessarily buying in the inability to communicate. Mm -hmm. I, I actually think that there's a, a quite clear stance being taken. Most of my teachers, you know, the Torah that, uh, that I've absorbed from my teachers really come from there. And I think maybe again, it could just be my neshama absorbs those teachings and understands those teachings in a different way than others. But for sure, what I hear in the rhetoric and in the messaging is an attempt. And I think everyone's a little bit guilty of this. We kind of, even if you're possessing a true idea, there's then the, 
the language you choose to package it in. And I would give you an example. We see it a lot with some of our mutual friends here, especially, you know, nationalist Israelis who made Aliyah from the United States and have a lot of support from the American right, whether that's financial mm -hmm. support, listeners, whatever, you know, there's always this kind of impulse uh, that really frustrates me, but there's this like impulse to kind of frame a lot of our issues in the language of the Republican Party or like American conservative. Or whomever it is, yes, I get you. Right, I, I hear that a lot and that always kind of gets under my skin. And you know, when I speak, I. I frame a lot of the things I say in different language, meaning I use... Hey, malasote, everyone's, yeah, you can't, without the language, you got nothing. <laughs> you can't, I mean, there's really nothing to be done there. I mean, I think that we're both, in our idealistic sense, trying to return to a more organic existence from Yisrael. Mm -hmm. but, but, but language is inherited perforce. You, it takes constant engagement. It takes a live conversation to um, be consciously involved in its evolution. Mm. But it's an evolution. There's no revolution in language. I mean, one of the things I recently said to one of our mutual friends, and I don't think he liked it, I don't think he appreciated it so much. But liking and appreciating are different. <laughs> I said, Let, let's try to be a little bit less Ben Shapiro and a little bit more Elisar Ben Yair. <laughs> I can think of a handful of people who would have even understood the reference and none of them would have liked it. <laughs> but I hope they appreciated it. Uh, I hope they appreciate it. Clearly, I think that if Elazar Ben Yair or Yudama Kabi or Dvorah Neviyah or Arona Kohen or any of our, you know, biblical figures or heroes were to come in a time machine to the present, they might be forgiven for assuming when they first get here that Hezbollah are the Jews. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, depending on which uh, what, a sociologist or, you know, historical anthropologist you ask, they might be. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, it was a joke. It was a joke. Yes, no, I hear it. it. The the image that you're projecting also has a healthy bit of romanticism in it as well, though. I mean, like, you know, Hezbollah as uh, essential expression of an organic, you know, local struggle to be exactly who you are and not what other people want you to be or what you've has been imposed upon you, etc. Right? Um, the the dialectic is always there, as you know. Mm -hmm. So we, we have a little bit of a challenge because we're recording this on Tuesday and I plan to release this on Thursday. So if we're going to talk politics and, and there's a lot to talk about, so I want to talk oh, yeah. politics with you. But if we're going to talk politics, we have to go into this knowing that by the time this podcast drops, the situation might be completely different. And it might not. Sorry, I grew up in Cleveland. We talk about the weather knowing that it'll change in a half hour no matter what. Great. So as of now, it appears that Naftali Bennett, the head of the Yamina party, is forming what we call a change coalition together with the liberal Zionist parties and the New Hope party and the Shield Beitenu party with some help from Mansour Abbas on the outside. That's what it looks like right now. I don't know what your thoughts are. My, my thoughts are this is something that Bennett has to do for his own political career, meaning it's very important for Naftali Bennett right now that he elevate himself to being perceived by the Israeli public as a prime ministerial candidate. And the way to do that is to be prime minister, even if it's just for a few months. Like he just has to get the public used to seeing him at that level in order for him to be able to kind of make the jump from being the leader of a small sectoral party, a jump he's been trying for years, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. to, to like ah. the leader of a mainstream, you know, party that could lead the country. 
I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you're saying. I think it's a it's a, 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 a good insight on both his character and a good read on the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, it's interesting to me because I had always sort of internalized this sense that I inherited from someone else. I don't forget who first said it to me. I, I'm sorry, I can't say it in the name. Really shame on that that on some level the religious Zionist world has never wanted to lead the country. They've always wanted to to play a very specific role mm-hmm. in the political makeup, but but because of the very messiness in the midst of which Bennett finds himself now, right, mm-hmm. and the and the sort of ideological um, purity which can grade into rigidity, but which is such a precious quantity as we were speaking about before, within that camp, right, that, that it was always kind of like a I call it the messianic punt. Someday mm-hmm. we'll be in charge. But meantime, actually, it's not so bad. But right. so it's interesting what you're pointing out is that that not only for his own political survival, I think you're correct. Otherwise, he just becomes yet another like BB wannabe knockoff with a keeper, right? Mm-hmm. We remember from the first election in this series of four, he did try to break away from the national religious sector and create his own party, and learned very painfully that he doesn't actually have his own political base, meaning the base that he had been riding on had been the national religious. He left them and couldn't get into Knesset, couldn't pass the threshold. Yep. That's right. I mean, uh, on, on some level, he represents the Dati light, um, the uh, sort of mildly conservative politically and economically, but socially liberal sort of subset, which is why the split between Yamina and uh, the sort of religious Zionist party actually made perfect sense in terms of just differentiating. Right. Naftali Bennett is a westernized conservative with the kippah. Well, even I would say in socially grading, it seems toward liberal, at least in, in his willingness to take certain stances. Mm-hmm. Um, I think his conservatism is, is far more on the side of security and uh, economics mm-hmm. than the social which makes a big difference within the religious Zionist world, because that's a real split and an important one, I think, to understand. But I definitely make a distinction. Like what you said, I think is true for religious Zionism, but I wouldn't categorize, you know, we've had this conversation before, I wouldn't put Rav Cook or Bezalel Smotrich, even ironically because of the name of his party, in the box of religious Zionism. I think religious Zionism, yeah, you know, al- always been kind of playing a, a minor role, or, or even in Bennett's case, like to lead the country, because the change government that they're looking to create is what I would see as like a wall-to-wall Yosef government, a Zionist government, meaning like this is all the Yosef parties are getting together, whether they're liberal, conservative, but they're all coming with their with, with their Western framework. I think it's important also just to throw some reality on it and say there's also a sense that the country is in a very delicate point. Mm-hmm. And all the theoretical discussions of Yosef and Yehuda don't stand up to, to our social fabric right now. And I would like to believe that part of the motivation beyond, I think you're, and these certainly don't contradict, but you're, you're correct in terms of his political future. I'd like to believe that part of the motivation that's, that's pulling everyone together is a sense that, can we get this ship a little bit more steady before we start to fight again? Because mm-hmm. Bibi in his personality right now mm-hmm. is rocking the boat on a level which really makes me sad, to be honest with you. I, I don't have any anger there for whatever reason, it makes me sad because personally I actually uh, admire many things he's done and, and many aspects of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like it truly worries me. I think that, that the very lack of leadership, even if leadership, which is putting forward a vision that I disagree with might at this point be better. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I, I fear, I, I put it, I'll put it in the positive. I think that any hope for our project here depends on a widespread commitment, diverse, 
the, the visions that fuel it may be, but a widespread commitment to active engagement in the project. Part of that project is political participation. And and the, the more cynicism and, and the more sort of rounds of repetition that get thrown at people, the more they throw up their hands and the more the door opens for power to be concentrated into ever fewer hands. And I don't think that that's the way forward. So I would like to believe there's a wide wall-to-wall -wall recognition in this potentially coming government that, hey, let's actually get back in the playground and make some rules again, and then we'll figure out who's really in charge. Maybe I'm looking at this differently. I've never voted for Benjamin Netanyahu in my life. Like I've never voted for Likud, I've never voted for Bibi. Uh, and I think that you're right in terms of the way you depict how he behaves politically in the political game against his internal rivals. But I also have to give him credit for being able to protect us through eight years of Obama and four years of Trump. And that was my point about the sadness, Yuda. Right. But, but listen, you can't dismiss politics as a small thing. He's doing damage to the structure. Could be. What I could be? Do you disagree that, that, there, that, that, that there's a real danger of, of, of if we had fifth, six elections? If we have fifth elections, you really think it's going to produce anything different? Uh, potentially. I think Bennett would be out. Okay, but but I mean, in in real sense of the the ability to form a stable government, mm -hmm. well, yeah, because right now what's going on is we have an overwhelming majority for the national candidate. It's just a question of whether or not people will sit with Bibi. Now, again, that's precisely my point, and 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 on some level, that may be his fault, it may not be his fault, but but part of leadership is recognizing when you know, like a good leader creates a situation that can survive and thrive without him. And that is the one thing he has consistently not only avoided done, doing, but has actively fought against. Well, which is why me, there's so many people out there in the political system who hate him. Right. So they can't dismiss politics as a small thing here. Let me say it this way, and Lahav deal, because I don't think they're really comparable. I think Yitzhak Shamir was a prime minister who really saw himself as protecting the Jewish people from all of the many forces that want to do harm to us and want sure. to obstruct our liberation. And I no think question. Shamir saw it as very important that Shamir continued to sit as prime minister. Like he saw it as important for the Jewish people, important for Jewish history, that he continue in the role. He but not was, important for him personally. No, not important for him personally. He was- and a, that's part of the critical difference here. Perhaps, yeah, again, I said Lahavdil. I'm separating between Netanyahu and Shamir. But Shamir was definitely not the politician that Bibi is. I would say that politics- <laughs> is the exact opposite. If politics were a sporting event, I would say that Netanyahu and the Haredim are the best athletes in the game. Best athletes. Oh, yes. And because they understand the rules. Right, right. <laughs> and I think that, you know, as you said, it, it, you know, I've never found myself in a position where I'm defending Netanyahu, but I appreciate being in this position now. It's always fun to have like new experiences I haven't had before. And <laughs> right, right now, I, I really see my perception of, of BB, and I could be wrong, because again, I don't talk to the guy. My perception of BB is that he deeply believes that the nation of Israel and Jewish history requires that he continue leading us right now. I, I think that he- I, I, I think he believes that as well. I, I think some of that could, I, right, he might <laughs> be wrong, but, and, and some of that could be a convergence of his personal and the national interest, you know, and, and sometimes it's hard to distinguish. Well, that's what we mean when we say that power corrupts. 
That is precisely what we mean. You know, you've heard the uh, sort of urban legend out there, which could be true for all I know, that um, his father, who, who sort of represents an inheritance of ideological continuity within the Likud world, you know, um, and was not a small historian in um, himself, I and mean, whatever people may say about the sort of Zionist lens he brought to everything, um, it, but that his father on his deathbed told Bibi that the next real danger of the Israel was coming from Iran, Mm-hmm. And that it was his responsibility to prevent another Holocaust from that direction. Okay. Right. And and, and well, like I said, whether it's true or not, I do believe that there that 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 is a core part of his stance. Mm-hmm. But but the way in which the political system has been twisted around his fingers, mm-hmm. and which he has systematically, like you said, there's no other national leader that can compare with him. I don't disagree with you. But the question is why. <laughs> like you know, like he, one of the answers is because he has systematically targeted and undermined anyone who could ever approach his status. And the further we go down this road, mm-hmm. the less likely it is that that leadership will emerge. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in my country in 15, 20 years where it's a bunch of school children running the show. I'd rather take that risk now. Well, okay, so I guess that's the question. You know, with Iran. It could be that a Bennett or a Saar uh, or somebody else is equipped to deal with Iran. Where I think Bibi has really spent years owning his approach to defending us is really with the Americans. You know, the first yeah. time Netanyahu was prime minister, he failed. Like, meaning the Americans managed to pressure him to give up 80% of Hebron. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Th- then they sent American political operative James Carville here to get Bibi right. in office. They kind of sent right. him, put Ehud Barak. Ehud Barak was their guy, and they put him in. They basically installed him and uh, got rid of Bibi. Now Bibi came back, and he he was never Shamir. You know, Shamir was a guy who would say to George H. W. Bush, Bush Senior, you know, former head of the CIA, Shamir would look him straight in the eye and say no. That was Shamir. that was the Shamir n- negotiating tactic. Right. No. No. I love it. We never saw Netanyahu take that position not, not, how he works. not with Clinton not with Obama not with uh, not with Trump he always kind of said yes but then would kind of slip through their fingers and he would behave yeah. as a snake and it was ugly and it and it was like shameful but it did manage to protect the, the man can dance through the raindrops and come out not just dry but shining I don't question well, that but my concern is that even if a guy like Naftali Bennett or whoever else is capable of handling the Iranian threat. I'm not sure he'll be able to resist the United States. I don't disagree with you, Yuda, but you're not, I don't think, hearing my fundamental point. So great. And while you maintain that ability to to navigate the waters between us and America, you progressively undermine and destroy our political system. At the end, it's only going to be worse. Do you really see him doing all that damage or do you think that's just media spin? I don't think he's necessarily like some the, the evil grand master that they like to portray him. I just think his presence at this point is doing that perforce. <laughs> you said it yourself. There is a enormous majority within the Knesset <laughs> for a mildly nationalist, religious, stable government. <laughs> You know, which could focus on lots of very positive things, maybe even has some energy within it that could actually develop a forward-looking vision that we could pursue instead of being so reactive all the time, et cetera, et cetera. What's stopping it? Who will sit with and who won't sit with Bibi? What really underlies that in my eyes? 
is the fact that he has personally, I'll be kind, um, undermined his relationship mm. with most of the leaders of those parties. Mm. Go one by one. I mean, they they exist in the parties they're in because he wouldn't let them. Because in. he would exactly. So exactly. I, I guess that's a question for me. Look, I, I can be just as cynical as you can. And I definitely hey, was being cynical. <laughs> well, I, maybe I'm going to be cynical now because it's so far. I'm actually being hopeful. I'll it, take the gamble. It, well, Let these children run the show. It's such a foreign experience for me to be defending Netanyahu. But at the same time, <laughs> when I look at Bennett and Saar, and I understand, you know, I understand the back end of party politics and I understand what they're trying to do. I don't see them as any more altruistic than Netanyahu, and I don't see them as any less, you know, self-serving in their political moves. I think Starr wants to be prime minister, and Bennett wants to be prime minister. In fact, I think Bennett needs to be prime minister because if he's not gonna, if he's not gonna raise himself, as I said before, if he's not gonna, I agree with you. I think that was the most one of the most astute observations I've heard in quite some time, because it's 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 prime minister or nothing. Right. If he's not prime minister now, his next election, I doubt he gets into Knesset. Right. Because he needs to make that jump. He needs to elevate yeah, himself. I think you're, that's a very, very important observation. So I think that when Saar won't sit with Bibi, I don't think it's, first of all, obviously it's a personal grudge. And don't it's politics. It. And that's part, and that is Netanyahu's fault, meaning maybe Netanyahu. I'm not interested in the fault. I'm looking, I'm trying to just look at the situation as it is. And, and yeah, part of it is because he made his bed, now he has to lie in it. But a real leader right now would also accept the fact that it's possible that the best thing you can do is step aside. Remember, by the way, he, at many points during this process, could have just said, I'm going to step aside for one year. Mm -hmm. Fight my legal battles. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I think that the odds are 50-50, if not better in his odds, that if he's guilty of anything, it's certainly nothing that everybody else in the political system isn't guilty of as well. Meaning he could very easily come out of these trials acquitted, mm -hmm. right? Um, and just imagine, by the way, his political momentum at that point. But I, I don't think he can. And that's exactly what I'm worried about. I guess my concern is for the country. I just think that we are still not free of the United States. I perceive Netanyahu as, and again, I could be wrong. I think I perceive him as having been pursuing a course of getting us free on the low, really quietly getting us free from the United States. And oh, I, interesting. I, I don't see that. Yeah, I, I think I, I would have liked to see He's him. diversified our basket. I'll give you that. Yes. And maybe I'm giving him too much credit, but I, I have perceived him as kind of slowly been moving us out of you know the orbit of the u.s empire and i would have liked to see him see that you through look at the trump era as included in that well again i make a distinction between his public posturing and what he's really doing and again he's a snake the guy just like kinda... <laughs> and and i think trump got extremely frustrated with bb many times i don't know if you remember but there were times where it looked like trump was trying to oust him directly yeah. So, yeah, so and by the way, I think also this whole the whole Trump plan got put aside because they saw that Netanyahu was saying something publicly that, but, but he wasn't really he wasn't really backing it up. No, no, I hear or, it. Or even saying things that undermined them. You know, Netanyahu was going and saying, "No, we're going to do the annexation part, and the rest of it will kind of leave for tomorrow." Yeah. And they were saying, <laughs> but, but, but that wasn't what Kushner wanted. And that wasn't what Trump wanted. They were trying to push a very specific plan. You know, they had a plan and, and what Bibi was saying. And I think at a certain point they had to ask themselves, why is Netanyahu speaking this way in front of us? Not even behind our backs, in front of us, where he would have never spoken this way in front of Obama. I, I think they were insulted. I, I think they actually uh -huh. very, got very frustrated with him. Anyway, we'll see what happens. Now it looks like we might have a Neftali Bennett as prime minister. 
Um, you know, he's about as national religious as Barack Obama is a black American. He, he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't. Really <laughs> or you could get you could get slaughtered by any number of people just for saying that. No, I, <laughs> but it was well, funny. I, what, what I mean is really that you know Barack Obama was essentially raised by his white family and sent to Ivy League schools. He lived a, you know, relatively privileged, you know, white American life. And when it became politically convenient, he used that identity. He went from being Barry to Barack when it served his political needs. I, I see Bennett as similar. I think Bennett is somebody who is really just kind of like a high tech capitalist who, you know, He's as traditional as most Israelis. I think he likes Shabbat as much as most Israelis do. And, you know, likes the Torah and feels close to the Torah as most Israelis do. But I think the Kippah is also political. And I think the Kippah is something, you know, he knew that in order to get in, he had to begin his political climb as leader of a national religious party, which he's been desperately trying to get away from, you know, for the last few years. I hear it. I mean, I think that he also is a genuine expression, like I said, of a certain chunk of the electorate. The question remains, as you pointed out, is it enough? Is he able to shed the narrow side of that identity, but hold on to the rooted element, which I think you're correct, is part of his appeal? Mm -hmm. It remains to be seen. But whatever it is, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not happy about the inclusion of Avodah and Meretz and Yisrael Beitenu and Yeshatid in the coalition. I'd like to see them, you know, permanently in the opposition, to be honest. I'm not thrilled about them coming in. I hope they're given ministries where they can do great work without damaging the country. Things like environmental protection, you know, but I don't want them doing any damage in terms of the Jewish character of the state, in terms of, you know, certainly not security. And uh, what I'm really hoping for is for the fastest growing populations, the Haredim, the Palestinians, and the national religious, to be able to get together and uh, create a real vision for this country's future. Well, you keep working at it. I know that that's a goal. Okay, well, Rev Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I always enjoy it. This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you've been listening to the Next Stage Podcast. If you haven't already, please don't forget to subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and or Spotify. And please leave a positive rating and review because that can really help us spread these ideas to a much wider audience. You can also subscribe to our newsletter at visionmag.org and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And of course, if you're interested in supporting the show or sponsoring an episode, please contact us by heading over to visionmag.org and clicking contact on the menu bar up top. And if you want to check out the show notes for this episode, just go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 54.